I really hope that you have enjoyed this study in the book of Jonah as much as I have. Uh, it feels like just yesterday we were, we were getting started in Jonah, and now here we are, we're landing the plane, coming to a close uh, this morning. And if you, if you remember, as we got started, uh, we asked the question, just what is this book really about? Um, because many people have different interpreta- or different ways uh, or different major themes they would offer for what the book of Jonah is about. Some think that it's about uh, our call to mission, God's people's call to mission, the call to bring uh, God's compassion as a light to the Gentiles, to those around us. And it would certainly be about that. Uh, some people would say that it's about uh, the ministry vocation. God has this prophet who wrestles deeply with his call and uh, in obeying God. And uh, certainly this book has things to say about that. And uh, other people would just say it's about God's costly call to obedience. And uh, certainly, I mean, it speak, this book speaks to all of those things. Uh, but what I hope that you are seeing as we go through text by text is that undergirding all of these things the, uh, the themes of God's sovereignty, that he is an appointing God, he is a sovereign God, that there's nothing that exists outside of God's sovereignty, and God's compassion are the themes that echo throughout this book. In fact, they lay the foundation for every ounce of, uh, of what God has to say to us in our day-to-day lives. Last week, we looked at Jonah's anger. Jonah was angry with God. This week, what we're going to get to do is we're going to see God's sovereignty and his compassion expressing himself again and how God treats Jonah in his anger. Let's look together. This is Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This, this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a text. What a book you've given to us and what a text. Uh, and what way you work uh, in displaying who you are and the mission that you are about in this world. 
and what you invite us into. I pray, Father, that as we look at this text, you would give us a sense, a deeper conviction about the character of who you are, how you treat Jonah, how you treat us, and what you call us into. Help me to love these friends well and to serve you. Uh, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you know this. Uh, uh, my mother, who was visiting here a couple weeks ago, uh, my mother is a retired high school chemistry teacher. She's a, a veteran in the ways of teaching high schoolers. And uh, she wasn't just a high school chemistry teacher. She was also my high school chemistry teacher. And every now and then, the two of us look at each other and we wonder how in the world we made that work. Like, we still really very much enjoy each other, and uh, she was my teacher. And one of the things that I remember uh, every year, uh, as, as August was coming around and school was coming into play, was the time that she took, the care that she exhibited, and just what she did with her classroom. And then, of course, this time every year, she's breaking it down, and it's just this cycle. And my mother had the greatest classroom. She had desks, those lab tables in the back. I still remember the black granite countertops, and everything was arranged. You know, chemistry has a lot of particular equipment with the glassware and the scope. Everything was in its perfect place. She even had those... uh, I wish I, could, I wish I had pictures of this for you. She even had those like chemistry posters that had like little chemistry jokes on them. And you, you know, they were clever because you had to kind of understand it in order to understand. If, she had a lot of those, okay? They were all over the classroom. And it was amazing to me just how much time she spent taking care, like making sure that her classroom was the perfect learning environment. When you went in, uh, you knew what you were there to do. Why? Because she was a teacher, and she was a good teacher, and she cared as much about the environment that we were trying to learn in as she cared about what exactly we were learning. She knew how critical that was. I bring all that up because in this story, I think we see God adopting the posture of a teacher, and you see him do this throughout scripture, but what does he do? He asks a question an exposing question. I mean, there's a question that it's more on that later. But he asks a question. He gives an object lesson. He gives you an answer or material that, that clarifies. And then he kind of hands it back to you and lets you wrestle with it. That's the flow of this text. He's a teacher. But what's interesting is, is the learning environment that he teaches in. Like, what do you think? This is God's school of mercy, And what do you think of this classroom? Instead of safety and security, a safe place to learn, what we see is that Jonah is very alone. And he's vulnerable to the elements. Uh, Instead of like slowly growing in knowledge so that you're growing and understanding more and more and more, Jonah just appears to me just as bewildered at at the end of this book as he did at the beginning. And so what is God doing? This is often the, the learning environment, uh, the place of difficulty, is where God teaches us, trains us in the character of, of mercy. First, the mercy that he calls us to, and the mercy that he uh, himself gives us. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at two things. I just want to talk about the questions that expose, and finally, the lesson, the, the teaching lesson he gives that clarifies. Questions 
God's questions, God, God's lesson. Okay, there's a real art to asking a good question. I feel like I, we've talked about this at some point in, uh, not too long ago. But uh, there is nothing like a question uh, to, to, to expose the truth of what's really going on, either, at a, either in a person or in a given situation. And God levels a doozy of a question here at Jonah in chapter 4. He asks him, do you do well? Do you do well to be angry? That's a heck of a question. And just to recap uh, about why Jonah was upset, he was upset because, jo- because God had relented from the disaster that he promised on Nineveh. Of course, God, or Jonah, hated the Ninevites. The Assyrians were the sworn uh, enemies of, of God and of Gen- Jonah. He, God hears their repentance and relented because God is a God of mercy. Uh, he withholds judgment and Jonah doesn't like it. And of course, if you remember, Jonah just said hilariously, I knew, I knew you were going to do it. I knew that you're slow to anger and about, you know, that whole episode. That's, that's his anger, okay? And he turns to God and tells him that he's angry enough to die. And there's a little wordplay in here about, about just how angry Jonah is. Jonah uh, the, the, that word hot applies not just to the climate, but also to Jonah's emotional state. That uh, it's it, it, in essence to say Jonah is as hot as the desert. That's uh, what's going on there. So Jonah is so angry. And then God comes at him and he says, do you do well to be angry? Why is that such an exposing question? Because that's a question that, because he questions the virtue of Jonah's anger right out of the gate. Dude, is it good? Is your anger well-directed? Is this righteous anger or is this just self-righteous anger? And that's an important question. That is like the question we should ask ourselves or each other in our anger. That's such a good question. Why? Because the truth is, there are times where anger is justified. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Not not all anger is unrighteous. And often we're somewhere in between in our expressions of anger. Sometimes uh, our anger can take on both both, uh, righteousness and unrighteousness. But let me ask you, are you, I mean, when you're angry, how good are you at sorting all that out, Right? Like that's, uh, it's almost like in our, in our anger, we become least able to understand our anger. And anger can get its, like, it can get its strength often in its self-vindicating nature. And I'm not even sure I'm capable of asking myself the question, is this anger, is this anger good or is this righteous? And so what is God doing? He's coming alongside Jonah and asking him in ways that Jonah can't even ask himself. To understand his own anger. And is this virtuous anger? So he questions his virtue. But this question also questions his devotion. His sincerity. It questions his devotion. Have you noticed that Jonah's just been all over the place in this whole story? He's been up. He's been down. He, he, the story begins 
with Jonah doing the thing that prophets historically complain about. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and Jonah runs. And there are several other stories where prophets complain about the word of God coming to the people and the people running. So Jonah is doing what prophets hate. And then, uh, and then he ends up in a fish. And then he has this beautiful, renewing, uh, exciting, like spiritually high prayer uh, that he has in chapter two, and then he goes and experiences the, you know, what must have been one of the most amazing examples of cultural and spiritual renewal in Nineveh. Like this, the it's it's the biggest city in the world to scale at that time, and they turn they didn't just turn to the Lord, but they turned from their violent ways and their injustice. I mean, the whole city's impacted by this, and Jonah's angry about it. I mean, the most amazing thing or the most consistent thing about Jonah is his remarkable instability. Like he's, he's just, he's just so unpredictable. What you think he would celebrate, he gets angry about. And what you think he would get angry about, he's now celebrating. And I owe this insight to uh, another pastor who made this observation, but he says that, uh, he, he said the answer to, to, Jonah's instability is found in James chapter 1, where it says this. It says, the double-minded man is, is unstable in all his ways. He's like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And then he calls Jonah a case study in double-minded instability. In other words, the, the root cause of Jonah... Jonah's up and down roller coaster emotional state, his instability is that he's double minded. And that often he wants opposing things. He wants what God wants and he wants what he wants. And when those two things come in conflict with each other, Jonah, Jonah gets angry. And so what this does, this, this question does two things. It questions Jonah's virtue. Is it good that you're angry? But it also questions his devotion. How committed are you? God is naming for Jonah his lack of devotion. That he's actually double-minded. And I think it's important that we take a step back and not just look at the question that he's asking, but look at how God is treating Jonah in this moment. Because this is real ugliness. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a kind of sin that we all wrestle with. But how is God treating Jonah? I mean, there's no question Jonah had a problem with compassion. He, he, uh, he had a hard time believing compassion for himself. He certainly doesn't want to extend compassion to others. God has invited him into a mission to spread compassion. And, and it's hard for him. But how is God treating Jonah? God is so patient with him. Like, instead of just blasting away at what what God is exposing here in Jonah, God is using his questions like a scalpel, performing a kind of spiritual surgery. 
exposing him and pointing to things that he wants to work on. He is like, God is demonstrating mercy as he is teaching mercy to Jonah. And that's what I want you to see. I just need you to see that. And I'll tell you, I need to see it for myself. Because often when we think about God's mercy, it's hard to think about like this constant flow of mercy moving from him toward us. Often when we think of, like we function as if mercy is something we're waiting for. Like it's something we'll be given at the last day. But one of the things we see here is that God's character is so infused with mercy. That his will is so given over to mercy. It is something he is applying even in the darkest days. And so even as his questions expose Jonah's heart, you see God's heart of mercy being exposed at the same time. That's what we see here. Now, what do we do with this? It's like God has Jonah. Boy, I'm going to beat another metaphor to death. God is teacher, now God is doctor performing surgery on Jonah. It's like he's got Jonah laid open uh, out on a table. He's got him exposed, and he's about to go to work on him. He's bringing, uh, he's bringing teaching, some teaching that clarifies just who God is. And I think what we see is that, uh, that he doesn't just treat Jonah with extreme mercy. He's now inviting Jonah into the sharing of mercy. And curiously, that lesson involves some cattle. So let's take a look at this here. Remember where Jonah is. He's outside the city. Um, most think that he has stuck around this. He's stuck around Nineveh, uh, looking, watching it from a distance um, <clears throat> because he has this resilient hope that God might change his mind, that he might change his mind and actually destroy Nineveh. Who knows? That may be why he's there. The, the text kind of leans in that direction, but we can't know for sure. Um, but he's hot. And what he, it's really interesting what he does. He sets up a booth. Now, a booth, um, <clears throat> that's an important word that's being used there. A booth, if, if uh, you remember, Israelites celebrated uh, every year something called the Feast of Booths. And uh, it's where it would last a week. And it's where the Israelites would go out into the wilderness. They would set up these temporary shelters or booths. And their families would live in them for a week. And and the whole thing was supposed to commemorate or remember uh, the time when the Israelites were journeying across the wilderness. Uh, God provided for them and what what life was like for them as they made their way from Egypt to the promised land. And the author seems to be indicating as as now Jonah could just be building a, a temporary hut, but he uses this word booth. Uh, probably to indicate that Jonah is also sitting there saying, look at me, I am alone and I am lost and I have no idea how to understand this place that I'm in. Like you can feel the self-pity kind of dripping off Jonah at this point. But Jonah is not alone. And his The Israelites were never alone in the wilderness. And Jonah is not alone either. And in fact, God provides for Jonah in the most interesting way. It says he appointed, that's an important word, he appointed a plant to come up from the ground. And this plant eases his discomfort. That word for discomfort is also the word that was used to describe evil. So this plant 
can, can be uh, described as a, as, a, as a way of uh, salvation for Jonah in some way. And this is a remarkable moment because um, <clears throat> this is the first time in the whole, and t- right at the end, this is the first time we actually see Jonah happy. Like Jonah is thrilled to pieces with, uh, with, with this weed or this plant that has sprung up from the ground. It's the first time that we actually see Jonah love something. The text says he was exceedingly glad, which is in contrast to the beginning where it said he was exceedingly angry. Jonah's yet again done a 180 turn, right? And he's so happy about these things. And the word to describe what's going on with Jonah as he loves this thing that God has given to him is attachment. Jonah has become attached He thinks that as long as I have this plant, I'm going to be okay. And our lives are full of attachments like that, don't we? Earlier this week, this was crazy. Earlier this week, I've got a computer that needs to get repaired. And I went to the Apple store. And uh, I take them, they look at my laptop, they say, yes, it needs a repair. Uh, so it's going to be really simple. We can fix this. All you need to do is leave it with us and we'll give it back to you in three to five days. And I think I'd love to know what my face looked like at that moment. Like, I think I felt hot that like a panic was coming over me because of the, the very idea that I could go without my computer for three to five days in the casual nature with which she she suggested this, is what just drove me up the wall. Like, you think this is a small thing that I can give up this computer for three to five days? Y'all can pray for me. I'm giving it to him this afternoon. I wanted wanted to get through this sermon, and then uh, I'm going to turn it in and see how it goes. Email me if you dare. Um, Our lives are filled with these things. That's just one example. Sometimes it's substances, sometimes it's food, sometimes it's power or influence or control. Sometimes it's our comfort, like these things that are given to us that we become attached to, that we look at and we think, as long as I have that or I have access to that, I'll be okay. And you know what God calls that? Loving the thing given and not loving the giver itself. He calls that being double-minded. That's what it means to be double-minded. And so in this object lesson, he gives him something. He exposes Jonah's double-mindedness for for him to see, for all to say. and, And then he takes it away. He kills the plant. And Jonah is now mad again. And he's full of self-pity again. And actually, God turns up the heat on Jonah. Did you see the sun beat down on his head? I don't know, but I'm betting Jonah was bald, which is especially awful. I don't know what a scorching east wind is either, but that just sounds terrible. And Jonah is so faint. And the question is, what is God doing with Jonah? Is he just playing games with him? Or is there something important that he's trying to teach Jonah? John Newton, the great John Newton, wrote a hymn about this story. 
And he said it was, and it was all about the ways God goes about setting us free from earthly joys that we might find our real joy in him. And in this last verse, he asks the question, God, why are you doing this? And then he says, God responds to these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. God is teaching Jonah, and he's teaching you and me, that for Jonah's own good, he will not allow him to persevere in small desires. Jonah loved his pride. He loved his national strength and security. He loved that. He loved his position. He loved his self-righteousness. And to all these things, God is saying, these things make you comfortable for the time. But in the end, you find yourself enslaved to them. It is only when you find yourself in love with me, is what God says. When you're fully committed to me, the sum of all your desires are found in me. That you will ever be truly free. And then he says this. And the love that you have for that plant that you didn't labor for even a little bit. You benefit from it. You didn't fight for it. It's but a picture. It's but a shred of the love I have for people. Of the love I have for those Ninevites who don't know their right hand from their left. That's, a, that's, a, that's an idiom that means spiritually and morally unaware. He, he pities them. He worries for them. That word pity might sound like a small word, but it's actually a, compass- a, word, a word that's rooted in the idea of compassion. Your pity for that plant, I labored for these people. I created them, I fight for them, and I love them. And so just as committed you are to me, you, you are committed to not just a compassionate one, a sovereign one, but you are also committed to one, fully devoted to one who is committed to you. That's the lesson Jonah receives. And it's the one that I want to give you this morning. And uh, it's almost as if, and and, uh, I think it's a hard lesson, but it's also a good one. The question we're left with is what happens to Jonah? Good teachers do this sometimes. They don't answer all the questions for you. They give you material and they make you wrestle with it. And it seems like that's what's going on here. We don't actually know what happened to Jonah, although we have Jonah's story, so it seems likely that he went back to Israel and he told them about it. But, but the, the question that's left to us is, what, how did Jonah respond? And I think that the author is asking us that question too. How do we respond How do we respond to this mercy of God that's given to us? Uh, You may have noticed over, I'm going to close this way. You may have noticed that I've become fascinated with the words and phrases in this book. If I say literary wonder one more time, some of you are going to take me out back, okay? But, um, But it really is amazing. This phrase that kept catching my eye all through the week that I kept coming back to is angry enough to die. Jonah was angry enough to die. He says it twice, maybe three times in this chapter. He said it once earlier in the book. 
I don't believe that he's exaggerating because he was actually willing to do that in chapter 1 when he told the sailors to throw him overboard. Jonah was so angry at God, so angry about the plant that he was willing to die. That's such a profound expression of the depth of Jonah's anger. You know, often when we look at this story, we think that Jonah is actually the main character. I mean, it's named after him. He's the one we're looking at all the time. But when you read the story, what you find is the most powerful agent at work the whole time, guiding the story, influencing people, changing scenarios. The most powerful, the main character of the story is God himself. And that Jonah is but a foil. Jonah's a foil for God. And if you don't know what a foil is, a foil is like a literary device Who's a character stands in, in such stark contrast to the main character in order to enhance the character traits of that, in order to make you see what's true about the main character. Harry Potter is awesome only as much as Draco Malfoy was uh, awful, right? Like that's the foil. And we're given Jonah, who seems like the complete opposite of this compassionate God, in order that we might see the one who is ultimately compassionate. And in Jesus, this is certainly what we see. That just as Jonah was angry enough to die, in Jesus we see that he loved so much that he was willing to give his life for those that he loved. On the night he was betrayed, he uh, was sitting with his friends his disciples in the upper room, and he said to them, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend, and that is what you are. No longer do I call you servants, is what he said. I call you my friends. This mercy is yours. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is not going anywhere. How will you respond? Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, dear Father, you who ministered to Jonah, will you minister to us now? Will you convince us of the truth of these things? Show us Jesus as the embodiment of these things. Help us find a rest in the goodness of these things. Be with us now as we receive these words and as we prepare ourselves to go to the table. Please bless these people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.